Hello, everyone. Welcome. Okay. Um, thank you for joining us at uh, Inconvenient Misconceptions when fundraising is harder. Um, we have a couple of housekeeping items here at the top, uh, the top of the session. First of all, um, we are recording this session, um, and it will be available on the AASLH uh, website. Um, so as a consequence, we will all be diligent with the use of our microphones. Um, so we uh, may be doing a little bit of passing around, um, and then in questions at the end, we'll be asking you to also use a microphone for that um, so that we can make sure that anyone listening um, from the website is able to hear that information. Repeat it. Okay, I can do that. Perfect. Um, so, uh, also want to mention if you are using social media and you would like to tweet or post uh, Instagram, uh, we are using the hashtag AASLH2019. Um, and we also are supposed to use our session number, which is hashtag S5. So, um, if you would like to do that, that would be great. Um, I am going to um, ask that we maybe pass around the surveys. I'm going to ask Kevin to do that for us. You can just get us started. <laughs> um, and so ASLH would certainly appreciate uh, your feedback on this and all sessions. You can either turn that in to the volunteer at the end of the session, um, back there waving her hand. Uh, you can turn it in at the registration desk, or um, if you're using the handy dandy app, you um, can actually access your survey um, through the app. So that is another opportunity for you. Um, and we do have um, a couple of handouts in the back from some of our panelists. We probably don't have enough for everyone. However, um, we will upload those to the app after the meeting. And or if you want to leave me your business card, I will make sure to get um, copies of those samples to you um, in your email. So if you want to do that, that would be great. Um, and now I think we are ready to go ahead and get started. And we are going to talk about things that make fundraising a little bit harder. Uh, maybe it's already hard. Um, and so we're not necessarily going to be talking about, um, you know, how to start an annual fund or, um, you know, we're not necessarily thinking, you know, our membership benefits are great. Um, we're talking about those things that um, even when you seem to have so many of your other ducks in a row, if you will, um, there are just some things, some misunderstandings, um, either internally or externally to your organization that just seem to make things a little bit more difficult sometimes. Um, so, you know, obviously everyone in this room comes from different institutions, different sizes, different locations, different challenges, so everyone's going to have a takeaway that is a little bit different. Um, but, you know, even... Um, even these folks here who are mostly from mid and larger sized organizations with development offices, um, you know, these are challenges th they face. But even if you're from a smaller museum, uh, local history organization, you may find that, oh, gosh, you know what? We have some of these issues, too. Um, and so I think some of these things are really across the board that we're going to be talking about and, and looking at how we might be able to implement some strategies. Um, so again, internal and external misconceptions. Um, our goal really is to take fundraising from something that is kind of reactive and defensive to something that's more proactive um, and positive. Uh, and you know, if you leave this session saying, yeah, you know what, we maybe should look into that a little bit more, that might be part of our, our situation. Or if you say, you know what, I think we could definitely try something that one of the panelists mentions, then we're going to be super excited about that. Um, and really, we want to start conversations. We want to make connections. And Misery Loves Company, sometimes it's just nice to be in a room with some other people who are nodding their head going, yeah, 
Yeah, that totally happens at our place. So um, with that, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Jamie Simic. I'm the grant writer for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum. Um, before that, I had the great privilege of working for the Indiana Historical Society as fundraising educator in um, their local history services office. So I'm going to ask each of the panelists to just introduce themselves to you quickly, talk a little bit about themselves and their institutions, and then we'll get started. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jennifer Hyatt. I am the Director of Philanthropy and Membership at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum. I also am honored to have come from the Indiana Historical Society, and prior to that had uh, worked with another historical organization, and then um, Health and Human Services. So I've been in fundraising for the last 20 years and have seen uh, many hurdles and obstacles, and uh, this is a great opportunity to, as Jamie said, misery loves company. <laughs> uh, good morning. I'm my, I'm, my name is David Jansen. I'm the executive director of Bruce Moore, which is a National Trust historic site and a community cultural center in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I've been the director there for about seven and a half years now, uh, but Within my 26-year career, I've, I've worked at organizations where I was the only full-time staffer. I've worked at organizations where I had 60 director and direct reports. So I've been able to see it from all, all angles, and the, the problems are very are similar. Good morning. My name is Jeff Matsuoka. I'm vice president and chief operating officer at the Indiana Historical Society. Um, and I uh, oversee not only our business and operations lines, but uh, also our exhibits and audience engagement. Uh, so it's good to be here. Thank you. All right, excellent. So um, I'm super excited about having this panel here. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work with all of them um, as my professional colleagues, and David is my, uh, my serial fundraising presenter partner. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, but so one of the things that we talked about and kind of, you know, just general conversations about fundraising that kind of got us thinking about this idea. Um, and, and I want to ask you all first, how many of you have ever been in a situation where somebody, a constituent, a member of your community, um, has made an assumption about your major source or sources of funding? <laughs> okay. Exactly. Welcome. So um, my question for the panel, and you'll see they have a lot to say. Um, they're kinda, I may not have to say anything the rest of the day, really. um, but my first question to you all, if you would just talk a little bit about, you know, you're all from different organizations, um, different situations, different regional locations. Um, what kinds of assumptions have you run into um, in terms of where your funding comes from for your organization, and how do you navigate that? whoever wants to go first. I'll start. I'll go with the obvious. Um, as the museum on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway campus, the assumption is that the Speedway supports us fully. And while we do enjoy our location and the benefit of the thousands of fans and visitors every year, we are independently uh, we are an independent not-for-profit and so conveying that message over the last few years which is when the museum began to fundraise as its own um, has been a challenge uh, car enthusiasts are not necessarily 
um, philanthropists. And so to convince someone that while your ticket to the race does not support those cars that you come and visit annually when you come to the Indy 500 or the Brickyard 400 has been one of our biggest challenges. So um, we have worked very hard um, and fundraising really only began in early 2015. And we've been building our database and recognition as an independent organization. And we have great support from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. They are fantastic at inviting us to participate in any events or any social opportunities. Um, but we still, it's on us to share with the community and the fans that are worldwide that we need your financial contributions to put it bluntly, throw down some cash. Um, we have an amazing collection of cars um, from the first, the Marmon Wasp that won in 1911, and those require maintenance, as you all know. And so what we have been sharing our Did You Know? Did you know that we're a nonprofit organiza organization? Did you know that the museum um, provides a place for you to visit 363 days a year? Um, so breaking that cycle of the misunderstanding that ticket holders pay for the museum, the Speedway pays for the museum, has been one of, been one of our biggest hurdles. And I think that... Um, the ones that live locally, they're the actually the hardest to convince. Uh, the we we don't see a lot of um, our community visitors because it's in your backyard, and you tend not to visit the place in your backyard. So that's been something we've worked towards. Yes. For our did you know messaging. For our Did You Know messaging, the platform we've used, we have worked um, with all of the social platforms. So because we have a limited budget, we, we just don't have the funds to do mailings. And so we have uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, all of them. So we have been putting those out. We have a very robust email list. And we collect, uh, when I first got there, one of the first things I implemented was um, an enter to win. So we do a monthly enter to win for a membership, which helps us gather at least 200 to 300 names monthly. And then we turn around, add that to our mailing list, emailing list, and we send out um, most all of our invitations and information through that platform. And we have done some mailings, um, but they have been limited. We did, uh, we did get ticket holder information, and we did send them a did you know, because you know that's kind of the first line of people who have this misunderstanding. And then from there, currently we're doing um, a did you know once, once or twice a month via social, via the e-blast, and then on our Facebook. You're welcome. Thank you. So we, when I uh, arrived at Bruce Moore in, two, in uh, 2012, the, um, there were a lot of those issues. You were talking about some of the things that we were facing and misperceptions. Um, certainly the real cost of preservation and the real cost of operations at the scale that we needed to is, is something we're all familiar with. Uh, people don't quite understand what it takes to do what we do and what that costs uh, to do it well. 
but we were also facing, um, we had some endowments set up, and that's the magic word, right, with endowments. And they were, they were relatively, relatively robust, and we had been living off that reputation for three decades. We have endowments. We also have been very entrepreneurial in the, our first 30 years with uh, cultural programming. We have concerts, we have blues concerts, and um, uh, theater, and plays, and festivals. So the public saw um, endowment. They knew about the endowment. They saw all of this earned revenue. We must be making money hand over fist. You've got 2,000 people on the lawn. That just might, that you're probably making $50,000 a night. Um, the, the misperceptions about about that revenue source we were really facing, um, over overestimating uh, the power of the endowment, overestimating real earned net earned revenue. Uh, and what that contributed to our bottom line, and then underestimating the real cost of the operation. We were, uh, and we had cornered ourselves, the organization had cornered itself into a situation where it had, it had consciously and unconsciously furthered this misperception, like, well, we don't, we don't need to raise money, it would be unseemly. So that's, that's what I inherited in 2012, uh, as well as some, I think some of the name, um, the name confusion with other organizations, right, with parent organizations. Well, the Indiana Historical Society has many barriers, and uh, uh, first and foremost is, as the Indiana Historical Society, we're perceived as a state organization, which is usually the biggest barrier many of us face. You must get my tax dollars. I'm not giving you any more money. The reality is, is that we are a not-for-profit organization, uh, and we are member-driven, and we are not state-supported. So that's one myth that we need to clear up. The other thing is, is uh, in many circles, uh, we were the benefactor, or we were the recipient of a very generous gift in the 70s, uh, and that created a sizable endowment for our organization, and um, the actions of the organization during that time didn't really help to uh, mitigate uh, many of those perceptions. Um, in fact, people joined the board so that they could learn or have the opportunity to spend Mr. Lilly's money that he left us. Um, so uh, obviously we're in a, in a different time now, uh, so we're trying to overcome some of those histories. In fact, we still have people that uh, uh, get involved with our board that are flabbergasted that we're trying to raise funds and they don't realize that the endowment does support a sizable chunk of our operation, but it does not support all of our operation. The organization itself also didn't help itself in the 90s when they built a very opulent building in downtown Indianapolis. And although we're very proud of our building, uh, most people uh, find the building somewhat off-putting or, or uh, it creates another barrier for people to visit, that this must be something that you have to have money. Uh, and so we've spent the better part of 10 years, 12 years, uh, inviting people into the building, creating other uses for our building uh, to overcome some of those perceptions as well. The question is, is there a barrier uh, to David um, about being a national trust yeah. site? Is there a barrier with the, the perception of being, we're, we're a co-stewardship property of the National Trust, so the National Trust for Historic Preservation owns the estate. Bruce Moore Incorporated, for whom I work, operates and preserves it uh, in co-stewardship. 
Yes. Uh, it's the, the, the perception barrier there is, first of all, the National Trust has national in name, which means federal money, right? It's a federal program. It's a, no. And uh, the idea that they, as an umbrella organization, that they fund our operations, which they do not. We are eligible for competitive grants within the, uh, the rest of the, our sister properties. Uh, we, uh, some of the endowment money comes from an endowment left to them for our benefit, but we're not part of their operating budget. So absolutely, uh, the National Trust um, name has, is, a, is a, a mixed blessing for us when it comes to development. Okay, um, now kind of along those lines, um, it's something that, that you, uh, you actually mentioned, Jeff, and you all have touched on your board, um, and everybody, most people probably have a board, uh, trustees, however, not everybody, but um, you know, folks you have to deal with. Uh, David talks about concentric circles um, and this idea of the people that are very closest to your organization, um, and so you know, certainly your board is a very, very close to the center of that concentric circle. Um, can you talk about a little bit more your board? Um, at your boards and um, any misconceptions, misunderstandings, and again, specifically to fundraising, um, you know, but, you know, how are you working with your boards proactively to help them better understand, um, you know, not only historically your fundraising um, initiatives, but also where you're hoping to move and how they need to come along with you? We, uh that's a good question. We, uh, our, our board was key to it, and for all most of those three decades, uh, I think it's similar to what you're talking about, people were jumping onto our board because they were told, it's great, you don't have to give or get. Th that's the draw. So you get the CEOs, you get the leaders, you get the community movers, because it's a prestige board. It's a letter, and for us it was a letterhead board. They weren't grassroots um, helping with the frontline stuff. They didn't have to do any development work. They just got to be part of this, this wonderful place. Um, overcoming that uh, was arduous. It, it's, we're, again, it, about a seven and a half years into my tenure and we've just got everything kind of aligned where the trustees who are on that board now understand the vision that we've been trying to espouse. And it started like with concentric circles. It started with a couple of key staff, uh, the board president, the executive committee, and trying to get the rest of the board on, 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 on one page. And uh, it, it took a lot of individual meetings and it took a lot of uh, making our case and collecting data and trying to impress upon them what we were seeing. It's been crucial because we're at a kind of a pivotal point now with some of our strategies uh, to have them aligned with us. And there were, there were moments where there were three or four trustees that I can remember who just were never gonna get it. They were never going to accept it. They were pushing back. No, 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 no. You need to be Cedar Rapids version of Ravinia. You need a big concert on the lawn every every weekend. That's the solution. And would not look at the data, would not look at the facts. So it's also working with the executive committee for us and the nominating committee to make sure we were bringing new, rotating new trustees on who were not yes people, but who could understand uh, the vision, understand what the real situation was, because I couldn't fight those battles in the boardroom while I'm also trying to fight them in the, in the community. Well, <clears throat> first, we love our board. Um, our board is a great resource for our organization, but it does present challenges. Uh, and anytime you have a group, in our case, up to around 35 individuals with all um, different uh, backgrounds and interests, uh, uh, it, it can be a challenge. And uh, 
the, the key thing first off, first and foremost, was develop a layer of transparency between the organization and our board members. We wanted them to see our financials. We wanted to make our financials clear to our board members. We wanted to show uh, the metrics that we use to measure the work output of our staff uh, and build that confidence that you know we're we just don't hang around in our offices and and you know collect a paycheck and you know we'll we'll preserve some things we'll we'll put on a couple programs and those type of things so it's really building that trust and then you have to go into the phase of of really um, really creating a culture where the board understands that a big component of their job is not only the oversight of the organization but they need to connect us to the audiences out there, not only to raise money, but to develop partnerships so that we can create programs, exhibits, uh, and those type of things. So uh, it's been a challenge. Uh, again, as I indicated earlier, uh, our board did not raise money for its entire existence until about 12 years ago, or they weren't challenged to do that. Um, in fact, several were, we, we also have a press, and we used to produce about uh, uh, 10 books a year. Um, and that was a big change when we said, well, we're not giving you these books anymore. It, we would encourage you to buy them from us. And uh, they felt that that was, uh, that just really didn't go over very well. But uh, over time, everybody's learned to accept that. So, um, but the big thing is education, transparency. Those are the two keys that, that I would suggest that are, are really important and make them a part of that process. Uh, and you'll get greater buy-in. As far as the museum's board, it's a very small board. It's under 10. And they are car enthusiasts, as you can imagine. Again, um, very supportive of the organization, but not necessarily financially supportive. We have a few, um, two outstanding board members. One that really stands out has supported operational expenses and um, really seen that there is a future set up, but we need our other board members to follow suit and to understand what it takes to move this into the next generation for this museum uh, as far as looking ahead at a capital campaign. And we brought in a capital campaign consultant last year to share this is what it takes for a board to successfully um, work a campaign and this is what you are responsible for and uh, it, there was a lot of silence um, there <laughs> there was um, just this deer in the headlights look uh, there are not enough of us to do this we, we do not have a collective amount of money to be able to get us where we need to go so now that that has uh, been established we are looking to grow the board um, and there, there's some pushback from that. They, they like to keep it this, this tight, intimate group of people uh, because obviously when you get more people involved, you have more opinions. You have um, other people weighing in on your decisions and how should we take the museum and what, what does the future look like? So we, we are still struggling to all get on the same page. And while we, we love our board, we do. They are outstanding advocates, but they are still learning how to be advocates in the community and how to fundraise for us and how to introduce us to others that will also support 
our mission and our goal and our financial expectations. So it's communication. We are in a position where we're getting ready to meet with each board member individually and discuss, here's what it's going to take. How do you fit in? And give them an opportunity. If you don't fit in, don't, this is the time for you to probably step away. Um, so that's a that's always a great conversation to have, but one that is absolutely necessary if we're going to continue to grow. Oh gosh, lots of questions. Go ahead. So the toughest part of this entire job for me is going to be to rephrase your question. <laughs> no, but it is an excellent question and worth rephrasing. Um, so the situation is that you are part of a, um, a larger organization. You have an appointed board on a public, uh, public appointed board. Um, they have general oversight for your subunit. You have no influence control over this, their selection or um, leaning on them to, to um, help support in any financial way your organization. And so they have a very legal um, governing definition, um, and not fundraising is not in their purview. It's not something they signed up for at all. Okay. I think David has a response, but raise your hands real quick if you're in a similar situation. Um, and so I'm going to give David the microphone real quick, and if any of you all then have anything, I might have Tabby come up and talk in the microphone, though, so I don't have to repeat what you said, but we would love to hear from you too. So no, I'm just going to, uh, in reaction to that, just a, a a thought that, because we've been talking about this as a panel uh, as we were preparing for this, what one of the things you need for any organizational change is some sort of leadership that recognizes that. So it's good as, as, as mid-level staff or as even as a, a director within a subsidiary, if, if we see it, it's not enough. Somebody who can, has the power to affect change has to get on board and take the lead if they have the authority and position and responsibility. So part of that solution has to be somebody other than you has to see it and be willing to make make that change. Um, and I think there's things we can do as staff to advocate for that and maybe find the data and, and find some, some evidence for it. But that's, yeah, that's what came to my mind. I'm wondering too about a, like an advisory board or an advisory committee that maybe you yeah, could define. Okay. So, and one thing too, if you if you can identify the problem, and there are so many, our profession is right with consultants and 
advisors, but if you find somebody who understands that too, to have the independent expert come in and tell that group, here's here's an issue that you need to deal with, that sometimes you're never a prophet in your own kingdom. Anyone else have suggestions? Yeah. Right, right. So having someone really be the, the ambassador or advocate for that. Okay. Um, yeah, did you have a question? Uh, or does the subunit have social media? Um, not separate from the parent. I've been trying to do that, but there's a concern about having different voices and wanting each one to be separate. So I do post, but if it is on the main page, it is on it sounds like someone needs to do a session about subordinate units and <laughs> like how to navigate that that kind of thing. Great. So using uh, making partnerships outside of in yeah, your community to kind of leverage leverage that. Yeah, one more. Yes to all the things. <laughs> And um, it was 
great way to find leaders. We just take it out of, I did have uh, a board member um, take me out to lunch and tell me that the state of, the, the chair of the state of Florida told him that it was a, a governing board and that he wasn't happy with me. And I said, that's great, we know how to run the transit system, I know how to run the state system. You have to give it to me. I appreciate you mentioning metrics. We are going to, um, at the end of the session, do a little bit of a case study um, and talk about data. Uh, and so thank you for that. And absolutely, um, you know, and, and it's education too. It's, it's maybe they, they just didn't know. Um, I'm curious, because it seems um, from our panel and then some, from some of you, uh, you know, a lot of our organizations, we would very readily say, we haven't been fundraising very long. Raise your hand if you would say, we really haven't been fundraising very long in relation to how old our organization is. So some, so that's a thing, um, and and I think that, you know, we just assume that everybody else knows what they're doing, um, and everybody else is doing it better. And I think that, um, you know, really we're just starting to see fundraising um, kind of gaining traction in terms of conversations in museums, and so I think that's exciting. Um, I want to ask our board um, to talk a little bit, kind of, you know, off the tail of what we've just been talking about, and the fact that people just sometimes don't know how it works. So I'm hoping you can talk a little bit um, about just situations of general lack of understanding, whether it was a lack of understanding specifically about your mission or the impact, the things that you are trying to accomplish at your individual organizations, or maybe it's just um, people don't really understand how nonprofits operate. And so, you know, do you have some specific examples where you've encountered that and maybe kind of how you've tried to kind of navigate that particular thing? Um, I know, David, one of the things that you had talked about um, was changing programs and assumptions that people make about that. Um, I think that, you know, we've all run into people not understanding how fundraising works. Um, you well, know, we, they only know us for one program. So can you talk a little bit about some of those yeah, things? Yeah, when you're successful at one thing, when, so history museums and historic sites, I think in particular, are very, very complex organizations, and, um, but they don't seem so. And uh, Bruce Moore had developed this tradition, this, this history of um, uh, this cultural programming. Like I said, concerts and plays and theater, some we produced, most of it was in partnership with somebody else, but on the face of it, it looked like we had this very robust output. And as a result of that, so 75% of our audience were coming for these, out these events, and then we get another 10, 10 to 11,000 people for the house tours a year. And so a lot of the director's job is to do curtain speeches and to talk, you know, and work the crowd and to go to intermission and, um, and find the donors and find the constituents. And one of the, we were so known for that, and again, I talked about how that created this misperception about how robust that earned revenue must be. Uh, which is false, but it also started to define us as a performance venue. And I remember uh, one of our theater productions, we called the classics at Bruce Moore, we do outdoor theater by the Duck Pond, um, and we do an American classic, or just one, one play a year basically, six, six shows a year. And I remember an intermission, I was talking to some people, and, and, a, and a woman 
came up to me and says, well, you're the director? And I said, yeah. And she goes, that's a, that's a full-time job? <laughs> it's, huh, yeah. Uh, yes, yes, it is. And then some. But um, I think it was, it's, it's um, the misperception about what we do and what it takes to do it. And we all have individual situations, and you all have a mission. You all have a different kind of corporate culture, organizational uh, histories that define what your outputs are. And to be um, compared to Disneyland or compared to a theme park or com compared with our, um, maybe to a larger history museum or a larger art museum, the public or the constituent or the, the stakeholder don't quite understand that we're really ramping up. It's, a, it's an awful lot of effort to use Bruce Moore in a, in a creative way. We're, for an historic house museum, you were not built and designed for what you use the site for. The grounds and the buildings were not intended to have 10,000 people walking through a year or 35,000 people on the grounds or semi-trailers on the lawn for the big stages for the orchestra. We're, the infrastructure is not designed for that. And so to patch, to, to have our little staff, relatively small staff, um, have to facilitate all those things and help these vendors and help these, um, help these um, uh, technicians put on these shows and make it look seamless uh, was a huge hurdle for us to convince this is a, this is a specialty. It's a niche. And uh, it's good that you don't think it takes a lot of work at some level. But that's a really hard, you want the visitor to have that wonderful experience and a seamless, see a show in an historic setting, a cabaret surrounded by 1911 courtyard, uh, court, um, uh, carriage house. It's a wonderful experience. But to be able to do that and make it look professional and have uh, the expectation be good requires an awful lot of, of work that we don't want them to see at some level. But then when you go ask for support for that, they think, well, why don't you do more of those? I think one of our biggest hurdles is actually being seen as a museum. We have been a place where we showcase cars. We are just a collection of cars. Go see the cars. And as we are professionalizing our organization and hiring museum staff, trained museum staff in collections, conservations, curator, then we have staff who have been there for years who are still under the impression that this is just a boys club to come and hang out at the desk and have a donut in the morning and forgive me shoot the shit for a few hours and um, you know walk through and see the exhibits and go on their merry way but they don't they don't see them necessarily as exhibits they just see oh look Andretti's smeared all over your museum right now that's really cool but to reframe that, that we are a real fundraising, not-for-profit museum that relies on you as the visitor to support us, that, and that's internal and external. Um, so changing the mindset that we need to showcase these cars in a way that we have to preserve them, we have to conserve them, and that you as staff are here to support that and that professionalizing is the goal of our organization and that being a real museum is, you know, that's that's who we are now. That's who we've always been, but that's who we need to be to the public and that's the face that we need to portray and that 
you know, while we have our challenges and our budget, nope, we can't just sell a car. I'm sorry, no, we, we can't sell this part of this collection just because it's not a race car. Maybe it was one of the other collectibles. Um, so changing the mindset, changing the, the um, idea of what we want to be to the community and that we want to be more than just a place where, you know, enthusiasts can come. We want to invite the casual visitor. One of, one of my goals is that um, I want to be the place where a family wakes up on a Sunday and says, where do we want to go? The zoo, the children's museum. Oh, you know what? I know that the Indianapolis Motor Speedway has a great children's program going on today. Let's go there. Because we've not been necessarily known for programming or the exhibits that we have or the programs related to those exhibits. We've just been the place that you go during during a race. And it's a stop-by place. And, and we want to be a place that you come and stay and it's it's family oriented but another one of our challenges is we don't have a cafe we don't have a place for you to kind of hunker down for an afternoon and stay um, another one of the misconceptions for us is the gift shop does not belong to us that earned income does not come to us um, that goes back to another organization so um, you know we have a lot of things that we need to overcome um, but for me I believe that letting people know that we are a real museum. We implemented a membership program in the last three years, and so that has been a good way to share the benefits of, you know, what we're doing, visiting the admission, discounts for programming, implementing programming, you know, creating these events where people can come in and learn more about the museum, where we have time to have some one-on-one -on -one conversations. This is, for us, it's a one person at a time sharing the story and convincing our staff that have been there for years that here's your little elevator speech to talk to every person that comes in because you are you are a fundraiser you are sharing our story with everybody who walks in the door and eventually we need their support yes stacy <laughs> the question is um, when you have a parent organization how do you talk about them kindly when you're letting people know that they don't financially support you um, for us that has that has been a challenge because of course everyone knows the Indianapolis Motor Speedway before you know the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum um, so we talk about what they do support and we are very quick to say, you know, we're, we're thrilled to be on the campus of. Um, because of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, we have the opportunity to um, share our space with over 140,000 people a year. And then we share that, but we fundraise on our own. And that they, they do support what we support, they support our mission, they support our vision, but they don't financially support that. And I, I think we've been very, and I, I look to Jamie because she's done a lot of grant writing as we've moved into you know, some um, grant opportunities and we have to be very careful how we word that because the grantors in our community, 
we're having to get over that hurdle with them as well. So we have to say, yes, we're on the grounds, but no, they don't financially support us. They, they support us emotionally, <laughs> for lack of a better word, and our goals, but they're not handing us over a check. So I, I'm not sure I can, I answered your question in the, in the very best way, but um, hopefully that gives you some direction. Also, if I could comment on that as well, I think there's there are a couple of different audiences for that message. So there's certainly the public uh, where you've got to be very careful about not um, airing any dirty laundry or complaining about another organization that's trying to fulfill their mission as well. And they may, at some level, are aligned with yours. Uh, so it's absolutely, I agree. It's it's um, touting what they do, and but but it can be too subtle sometimes for the general. If they've already got some sort of cognitive framework that exists, if you're not abrupt enough, it they don't shake free of it. I think for me, it was I was a little bit more overt uh, with some of the community leaders and the thinkers in the uh, the thought leaders in the community of being a little bit more clear with them what the reality was not in a uh, never throwing anybody else under the bus or saying that organization doesn't do that or they don't do that it was uh, letting them know we're struggling this is the the vision you have um is is actually crippling uh, our effort and um so trying to be selectively transparent with the right people so that eventually we had enough people over the years have created enough of the decision makers in the community that, they, and they feel like they're getting the inside scoop now. So they feel like they're on the in uh, with what's going on at Bruce Moore. Um, so it's, it's trying to, and sometimes I've strayed probably too transparent, uh, so I say translucent, but um, with, with uh, maybe too close to the public. I want to be very careful about that, but, but I've, I've been very, overt about if the right people are in the room, bringing them inside. One other thing I'd like to mention is that IMS is also very quick to say that they don't support, uh, not very quick, but they do let the community know that they, they don't financially support us. So I don't know if you're in a position where you get that reciprocal um, information shared, but that's, that's been helpful for us too. Is there another question? This is where I have to be translucent. Uh, I think there are moments, there are, yeah, how do I pray? This is recorded, right? It is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I think. Uh, rephrase the question essentially if there's a parent organization uh, that you want, to, you want to distinguish yourself from, but they see great value in what you do and they like that that's part of their brand. Uh, that's tricky because you don't you don't you don't want to 
necessarily sort of elbowing out for getting credit for the programming. You want to be you want to be generous with that, but at the same time, it, it um, any time that a parent organization or another group starts to take credit for what you're doing or think that it's a very top-down process when it's actually bubbling up from what you're doing internally, it's a, it's a very tricky line. I don't know that I can solve that for you other than that's, that's a, those are good conversations among peers to, to vent with. But um, I think it's, it's uh, being, for, for us when we have, not that I'm saying that we have or have not been in those situations, where a parent organization might be, might be um, um, getting some of the glean from from what we're doing. Um, it's just trying to be very careful about the messaging and being very very specific about this is produced by us or this is a program of this or trying to come up with those definitions so that the the language you're using is not it does not necessarily uh, put off uh, a parent organization or um, a parallel organization, but. Uh, you absolutely have to be able to go to a donor and say, say, this is what we're doing. You're funding this program. Our staff is doing that. And maybe maybe we get to that a little bit later in the case study. We talk about that data and documenting the facts. Having the facts uh, uh, on your side is a, is a good start. Okay. And I think, you know, just to, to carry on a little bit there and something, some specific examples of things that we have done um, at the IMS Museum, um, when we first... Um, kind of started this whole initiative, our website was a page on the IMS website. Um, and so the, one of the first things I did was create our own identity online, our own website that ends with .org, um, that we control. We don't have to contact somebody else to make an update to our website. Um, similarly, you know, we, across the board, social media, IMS Museum, um, and we have somebody that's responsible for that. Now, we also certainly make a lot of, you know, we tag them. Um, we have to promote their things. We're finding they're much more um, likely and, and willing to promote our things. So it's kind of just making sure we're very deliberate about the public face that we're, you know, we're together. We're siblings, we're friends, um, but you know we are separate. Um, you know, and we also take. We had the same address. Um, our museum didn't even have its own address. So, as much of a pain as it has been, um, and if anybody wants to talk about changing your uh, your address with Sam and Duns and everything else, um, but you know we changed our physical address. Um, and so those are just some things we've done. And we also are very, very deliberate when we talk to funders um, and, and cultural and arts funders specifically in our city, just making sure that they understand because a lot of times they don't understand either and they are the folks that end up in conversations with other funders, um, you know, with other grant makers who are saying, oh yeah, I didn't even realize that was the case. So um, just an aside there. Um, but you know, this kind of leads us into messaging. Um, and so, you know, before we jump into the case study and spend a little bit of time talking about data, which is very exciting, and we all love data, right? <laughs> um, but we, um, you know, I, I'd like to ask our panelists to talk a little bit about messaging um, and kind of this idea of, you know, how do you know that something is being perceived incorrectly um, or could possibly be perceived incorrectly, and then what is your plan? You know, what kind of concrete things do you do, um, you know, as leaders of your organizations to make sure that your spokespeople, um, your board members, your staff are consistently messaging what you want them to message um, and, you know, and to make sure that, that that's very clear going forward? Ready, go. Yeah. go ahead. <laughs> um. 
we when we were trying to identify what the misperceptions were, you're 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 a city park. You're funded by the state. You're funded by the federal government. You're you're an agency. What we we um, this is when we were in more of a reactive mode, but we wanted to get the other message out there. So we looked for opportunities. Uh, gradually, the content of our membership newsletter changed. It got much, much, uh, much more clear about uh, how we wanted to define ourselves. I think the, the quickest answer is because of all those curtain speeches, and I'm up in front of audiences all the time. It's how we defined Bruce Moore is a. Um, it's all. It's not really at the level of a marketing or branding uh, name, but we started using things like we are a privately owned, locally operated nonprofit. We liked having that in us. So we didn't get into the, we're a historic house museum and cultural center, which is true, but we started defining that operational existence very consciously when we talked to people. We are privately owned, locally operated. So we're not a public park. We're open to the public. Uh, we're, we're, um, we're a nonprofit. I know you see a big mansion, and even though you think I'm part-time, I draw a salary. Um, but we, we wanted to immediately try to find those words that punctured that, and the staff would the staff we did we did not have a conscious messaging plan other than later on with our board of trustees we did develop some talking points along these lines very specifically. We are still working on our messaging plan. Um, we have realized that we need to start from within and work our way out. So we have taken advantage of our amazing uh, local history services, field services group, and have brought them in to survey our staff and ask them some you know, really difficult questions about, you know, how do you see us? Do you see us as a museum? Do you, what do you see your role here? Um, questions that we as staff cannot ask them. It, it takes a third party to come in so that they can honestly answer and we can make some assessments on where, where do we need to start, how do we need to talk to our own staff, and what is it that we need to educate them on, what, what, what's our awareness messaging internally so that we can get make sure that our external message is the same. Um, so, like I mentioned, our did you knows. We sent that out in, in, in a list form. That was an annual appeal listing out, you know, we host events. We are a nonprofit organization. We offer tours. We have membership. We have, we, we fundraise important information that people did not know. And we started small. Didn't want to overwhelm. Um, people don't like to read a lot, so we wanted to make sure that these were short and sweet messages. We continue to do that through our social media, through our e-blast. Um, we have our website that we feel like is very clear as far as you know, navigating through there to get to the information that they need to get to. Um, so we are slowly but surely trying to work on just sharing the information that we have as inexpensively as we can also. And then as we talk to people, we have, um, we implemented I am a member wristbands. So when staff goes downstairs, because our admin officer upstairs, when staff is in the um, museum area, we can stop and talk to people and say thank you for supporting the museum. And then that tends to start a conversation with other people around it. So it goes back to, one person at a time, kind of this grassroots awareness messaging that we are, we are this entity, and we thank you for supporting us. And um, 
So that's part of what we have done. Well, um, we've done many of the same things. If your organization has the ability, first and foremost is be proactive. Um, really try to identify what are those uh, the misperceptions that may be out there in the audience. Uh, the other thing, too, is if you do have the funding available, uh, an awareness study in your region can answer a lot of questions for you or at least throw out uh, a lot of questions for consideration. Um, you know, we, we, we tend to look, uh, we tend to be insular and, and we, you know, we think we know what our audiences think about us. Um, but it's really good to get um, an unbiased opinion uh, of what the audience really does think about you. Uh, and then you can work not only with your staff, but also this is a great opportunity to involve your board. Uh, you develop strong relationships with your board during these, these uh, opportunities to, to work with them uh, and really help. Uh, and a lot of times the, it doesn't involve money, uh, so they're happy to, to be a part of that and help share the message and, and make sure that everybody is, is talking from one voice. Great. Okay. Well, I want to make sure that we have enough time um, to talk a little bit about this data gathering that, that we, we've promised. Um, and so when I, David put together a handout, um, and again, let me have your business card, um, and I will make sure you get a copy of that, and or we will also upload it to the to the app. Um, but David sent me kind of an overview, um, and he said there was a pervasive misunderstanding of the organization's limited capacity and resources, and evidence of a looming preservation and sustainability crisis. And in the back of my head, I heard dun dun dun. <laughs> and so um, I'm going to ask David to talk about. Do you want to come up here, David, so you can see the slides? Or are you good? It's totally up to you. Um, just talk a little bit about kind of the work that, that you've been uh, having ongoing to, to address this. Yeah, thank you. I'll, 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 there are a lot of words on this, but it's for an accumulative effect. It's not for you to read all of it. We, um, we had this pervasive misunderstanding, and I, we've, uh, it started off very reactionary and, and local. So you can see a lot of different reports and a lot of different data that we gathered. Some of it were, 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 came from independent consultants and from people we had to pay, but a lot of it came internally from just reshaping the data or turning it into a report uh, based on what we were seeing. Just, we needed to uh, undermine the alternative facts that the community had, and we, we, it became exhaustive, but it was our knee-jerk reaction to answer every question and to try to figure out why that misperception was wrong. Um, is that me? That is you. So uh, essentially, we had four different areas. We, we needed to define the need. We needed to define uh, what the reality of the cost was. When, when Bruce Moore was given to the National Trust in 1981, the donor, Mrs. Hall, asked the National Trust, what would you need to take care of it forever? And the National Trust, uh, an attorney, uh, looked at the maintenance records and bills in the previous three years uh, in the late 70s and said, you know, for about um, $100,000 a year should do it. So if you give us a $2 million endowment, that should be good to take care of it in perpetuity. And that was seen as a huge windfall for a, little, a house museum. It's not little, but a $2 million endowment was a big deal. Um, at every step in the way in our history, they have underestimated the preservation cost, and that's been problematic. Uh, so we had to address that. 
uh, the fundraising history in our capacity Andrew talked about we just had we had uh, shot ourselves in the foot repeatedly uh, with that the impact in the audience seen as a seen as a performance venue and it just must be oh it must be great to put on plays and how much fun is that and there's really no cost to that you're just throwing something together and having people watch theater on your lawn um, really starting to get into what's our real impact what's the outcomes that we are producing in our community why should we be valued beyond just being a kind of a pretty place to come what are we doing in the community to make a difference um, and then up and then the idea that you have a huge staff we have 26 acres seven historic structures and the visitation we have we have right now 12 full-time staff I, I think we're under fun, we're understaffed based on the mission and the, and the what we're trying to do but it looks uh, we're actually have one of the smaller staffs of the major museums in our um, in our uh, city but it looks like we have this robust staff so I needed to get to the all of those things were were hobbling any effort that I could have had to start a, a development program so I needed to have that data I'm not going to read all of these we do have these in a handout but I want to point to a couple of ones that were illustrate a point this preservation audit in 2015 we had no idea what we should be spending every year we were going project by project um, we um, I enlisted the help of a preservation architect who I'd worked with in Ohio uh, Elizabeth Murphy from Chambers Murphy and Burge I said Here, here's what I need this is really isn't a planning tool this really isn't a this isn't a define the project it isn't a critical needs list which we created later very specific I just need a concept I need you to help me define for the for for my audience that we have to be putting more money into this it's a hidden cost and it's going to overwhelm us and she got it and it was uh, the point there is and we were trying to be very creative it was a relatively low cost it was a it was a mid four-figure uh, report but we call it a preservation audit and she went through all of the buildings and from her experience the complexity the age she came up with a a chart that uh, that indicated that you should be aiming for about a million dollars a year every year in perpetuity and preservation based on the complexity the age the location um, and we by the way triangulated that number later with a critical needs list with a backlog with contractor estimates also with the idea of, of any kind of capital uh, facility you're gonna they're try to budget about five percent of their insured value so we all of those things come back to about this same number so it's a good number we had then we looked back and and for the last 35 years we had been putting about 130,000 a year into it that's a really nice data point for me to bring up so that the point there being with, with some of these were relatively low cost the preservation audit was us trying to think outside the box not going to a simple uh, a typical assessment that we can get a cap or a map or a really good assessments for the right purposes we didn't need that what we needed was a very specific kind of strange data point and we were uh, unafraid to to be creative with that so um, it was also interesting for us to show how poor we had security and fire protection that's a nice that was a nice hook too that only one building on site has fire suppression uh, and only two buildings have fire annunciation um, we went to and then getting back to documenting what are we what are we what impact are we making um, most of these are staff driven and self driven I think um, we tried to find out why people are coming we tried to miss is a very SHA uh, Connie graph kind of thing uh, which was great for us it was what what do you what do people think feel and do as a result of coming to your organization we did a very down and dirty easy kind of evaluation uh, to do with with uh, you know we had a sample size of about 200 people 
to demonstrate that uh, people feel better about their community, have more uh, greater interest in history. We can say those things rather than it's good. It's a good place to see a play. So having the the being able to go to a donor and saying we make an impact. Um, I want to the state of the estate report was oops, sorry was a culmination of all of all of this um, down in the middle of the list there. That was essentially an essay. Uh, it was a it was an executive summary and about a seven or eight page culmination of all of the data that we'd been creating. And we've we've changed it every year. We've updated it. But it becomes my Bible. Not only do I orient new trustees and staff with it, read that first. That will tell you where we are, how we got here, where we need to go. But it also becomes, it's a, instinctively a spine that we go back to when we think of other strategies for messaging or for development uh, to try to answer some of the questions that we get. But this is where we get into you know, staffing history and uh, the reality of how many people we had compared to the program output. Yes, we have 12 staff. Early on, we had three. Well, gosh, Peggy, Peggy, your founding director, she did all this with four people. She did not <laughs> do all this with four people. I, she was my mentor, and I love Peggy, but she did not do as many things as we're doing now. So I can show that. I show them on a chart. This is how many staff they had. This was the program output. This was the audience. So we, we, not all of this is, um, is expensive. Not all of this is uh, something you have to hire a professional consultant. You have to know what you're trying to define. You have to know what answer you're trying to, to come up with. But we were very creative in crafting the data points that we needed. And uh, again, we accumulated all of it into that, that state of the estate uh, report. And then finally, the fundraising, the capacity. This gets a little bit more into a feasibility study membership survey. It was really fascinating for us to find out that our we did have a membership program. Um, we had, for the first 30 years of our organization, we had um, only gotten a half a million dollars total in just contributions and donations. So 30 years, we had a half a million dollars. Um, but we did have a membership program, and we had sponsorships for events. And we, had, we were working on these, again, misconceptions internally. Well, you're, you know, people come to events, they'll love you. They'll, they'll be members. They'll buy memberships. They'll come and be donors. There was a very clear line. Members did not take tours. Even we were touting membership gets you free admission into the House Museum. They didn't care. Our members, by doing the survey, we, we were able to uncover that and unpack that to say our members are supporting us because of, they have a sense of philanthropy, but they just don't know what the need is, so they're only giving us 50 or $100 a year. They don't tour. Well, people who come to events will jump. People who come to our events, about 20 to 30% of them maybe will, will buy a membership, but they don't donate. So we were able to, to disassociate the, the myths of, if you participate in the program, you're automatically a member. But there's an audience there. You can upsell them theoretically. But th those are those are crossover Venn diagrams. They're not necessarily a, a linear progression unless you make it so. So defining what those barriers were were very important to us. The point of all this is that we spent, um, some of this was to have the data to be strategic. I will be honest with you. Some of it was just simply therapy <laughs> to go, no, that can't be right. It can't be right. Let's go back. Let's find the answer. Okay, now I've got something to, to step to stand on. You build this base of data. It was uh, it's it's working very well for us at this point in our history because of some of the things that were some of the strategies that are maturing. But um, I think the message that I would want you to take away from this is that um, we try to pivot from being reactive to proactive. So I tried to have the answers ready to try to shape our vision based on what I knew, as you said, what I knew the misperceptions were. 
Um, secondly, that doesn't have to be a $50,000 feasibility study. It doesn't have to be something that you get an independent. It's good to have the independent consultants verify some of these things. But um, we also found grants, operational support grants, and, and maybe a donor who's willing to give us $5,000 to define this problem. So we found money outside of our operating budget. Um, but, but a lot of it was internally. What questions do we need to answer? And what, how can we creatively think as a staff to come up with data, to come up with um, uh, the facts? Uh, it's really powerful to have that. And it's a, it's a comfort emotionally, too. This is, this is a, we all have tough jobs where we're juggling enough. Uh, but then to also battle misperceptions, to battle things that are, that are um, um, unknowns. Uh, to go into a meeting then and have in the back of my mind all of these little data points, having gone through all of it, when I hear one of the cliche, well, you guys, you blah, 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 I, I can go to those now. I've got those. So I can answer that more succinctly than I can right now. Yes. Yeah, did the surveys help the board? Did it help internally? Uh, very much so. Uh, and it, uh, it was interesting to watch the more of the data we collected, and some of it was in response and with the help of board members. So I, I remember pulling in a bank president, he was a founder of a local bank, and he, had, he said he understood the misperceptions very well. And it took him about two meetings two trustee meetings, so it wasn't really, it wasn't, it was just hearing me uh, repeatedly saying some of these things, that he immediately, you know, after, within his first year, that he had the, he had the, the messaging, um, and having some of those data points and presenting them at board meetings was very powerful, so absolutely that was critical. We started with this messaging, we started with a few key staff leaders, people on the staff who I thought could, could get it and could accept it. And that go, went to our executive committee, it went to our trustees, and then I invited, we created uh, my second year, the state of the estate um, meeting. The first time we'd ever invited all former board presidents. And at that time, both of my predecessors were alive. The, the, I'm the third director. We invited them all to the site, and I went through this because we didn't want them, I said, we're gonna be talking about this for the next four or five years. I don't want anyone in this room to think I'm pointing fingers and saying you did something wrong or it's your fault. Pioneers have no roadmaps. You did everything you could with the data you had, and I'm standing on the shoulders of that. But um, to, to get people in those concentric, and then we did uh, eventually did another state of the estate for all former trustees. So we needed to get ahead of the, what's going on at Bruce Moore? That's just, but having that data was key to all of that, to have a real, to be able to boil that down and distill it into a quick PowerPoint, 15-minute preservation, if I can get in the room with somebody with some of these data points and I understand where they're coming from, it was really powerful to be able to start to turn those opinions gradually and now we have a broader sense. I mentioned that in our first 30 years we'd raised a half a million dollars total. In the last three years we've raised 5.2 million. And part, it was based on the first three or four years of my tenure building a different narrative where people, oh, okay, it, it should be part of my philanthropic concern. But it was all based on this data, as exhaustive as it was. Um, 
was the catalyst that we had this, uh, that I had inherited this preservation need, but we didn't have the donor base to, to uh, deal with it. Uh, yes, partially. I also know that, I mean, we're in the middle of a, our first ever capital campaign right now, and, uh, but we know very well, and I'm trying to be very careful about this when I message in the community, that's just paying for things we weren't paying for before. The organization is still going to atrophy, and it will die. Organization, a nonprofit, is a business. It will grow or it will die. That's only two options. And we are not a robust enough organization to handle our preservation mission every year. So the capital campaign is great, but I show it's another data point. I showed some local foundations. Here's, where, here's our preservation need as we calculated it. And then with, with the campaign, it'll go down to here. And then we showed them on a graph that we'll be right back where we started. Even after a $5 million campaign, we'll be right back where we started 10 years from now. So the capital campaign was great. That can't be the only solution. So part of it, yes, was the preservation backlog, and the, but most of it was that the organization, we can't operate. We're running out of you know, the, just inflation and administration for some of the events, working with vendors. We won't be able to sustain that, which is harder to define. Yes. So how do you avoid how do you avoid the um, the idea that the capital campaign will solve everything uh, if it wasn't messaged originally? What we're I'm tr in our in our uh, case statement in our published kind of campaign pamphlet we include there will be more we include at the end of it where we will probably have an endowment campaign. Uh, we have we have a strategic solution in our mind involving some other donors and foundations in in town that we're working on. We do have an we do very much have an end game because I don't want to have the same mistake, but I have to be very careful about how much I talk about that in the community because we're not quite it hasn't matured yet. But um, we very much are very clear in our in our messaging that don't think that this will fix it and will be done. That's not how preservation works. That's not how operations work. Uh, we've, I've been talking very uh, consistently and patiently and methodically, like a drone, that uh, this is not about Bruce Moore the site, this is about Bruce Moore the organization. Our organization needs to grow. It's not about brick and mortar. It's about having an organization that has the capacity to take care of the brick and mortar. And um, we try to be very careful about that. Operations are key. David, just one thing. Yeah. Anybody planning a capital campaign, um, now this won't help you necessarily in your case, but you need to factor in the cost of the annual fund and the support that you receive for your annual fund into your campaign costs. Um, I've seen organizations time and again that get into the campaign and that money becomes restricted to the campaign and their annual fund suffers significantly. Um, so make that a part of that. At the, at the same time, we were worried about that cannibalization as well, and we saw some of it, but we were also, you know, a, a capital campaign is, is going to broaden your donor base, so at the end of it, you'll come to the campaign and come down and hopefully settle at a new norm that's a little bit higher than before. You'll have 
people who now, for the first time, may have given you $500 for the campaign, and now they may consider a membership too. So there's a light at the end of that tunnel, but you're absolutely right, the, the, the cannibalization happens. All right, we are out of time, unfortunately. So um, I do want to thank Jennifer and David and Jeff for joining us um, on this panel discussion. Their emails are uh, up here on the screen, so feel free to take a picture of those um, if you have any additional questions that didn't get answered, um, or if you want to post those on Twitter, we'll try to um, respond to them uh, that way also. But thank you all for coming to this session. Um, hopefully you have a couple of takeaways, and if you wouldn't mind, please make sure that you fill out your survey. Thank you.